have you ever searched and searched and searched for something that you've lost, only to find it was actually right in front of you all the time? Lots of wives looking at their husbands now. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Glasses that were on your head, or keys that were in your pockets, or tins in the cupboard that you were literally staring at and you just couldn't see. I've lost things for days, I need to have them turn up in the first place that I looked. I've lost things in really obvious places, as though they're sort of hiding in plain sight. Must have looked at them a thousand times, but somehow not seen them. I have eyes, it's right in front of me, but somehow I don't see. Or, at the moment, I've been getting into some jigsaws uh, a bit on a Sunday evening, I'll live the exciting life, uh, you know, but uh, just a bit to unwind. And Caroline will tell you that even jigsaws, I can get frustrated, convinced that there, there are pieces missing. You know, I bought it from the charity shop, I'm taking it back, it's not got all the pieces, I've been through every piece, it's not there. And then an hour later, I found it, it was right there in the pile, right in front of me, all along. I have eyes, it was right there, but somehow I don't see. But I'm not alone, am I? There's much more serious problems associated with this idea. In our passage, we're going to meet people who have eyes, but do not see. In the last passage, last week, we saw people with ears who did not hear. And here this passage builds on that idea, on that picture. And it's not an understatement to say that this morning's section is the second most significant in the whole of Mark's Gospel. The most important being the cross and the resurrection. But this passage forms the centre of the Gospel. It's a sort of hinge on which the whole thing turns. And the emphasis will change dramatically from this point on from who Jesus is to what he's come to do. See, Mark's Gospel really has a simple structure. It's two halves. And in this passage, we have the crossover from the first half to the second half. The turning point, the changing of the tides, the the linchpin. You get the idea. None of the other Gospels work this way. Just Mark. But it's his way of showing us what Jesus is all about. What he's come to do. And what it means to follow him. And those really are the three big questions Mark has been answering through his Gospel. And here in a rare moment, all three questions come together, forming the centre of his message. So this should have something to say to us, whether we've been following Jesus for years, or whether we're not even following uh, following him yet. There could not be more important issues to talk about than who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. So let's dig in. Three points this morning. First of all, having eyes. Uh, and not seeing. Have a look at verses 14 to 16 again. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing one another the fact that they had no bread. The disciples here don't understand what's going on. Jesus is talking to them in parable-ish language like we've seen him before, using metaphors and picture language. And as before, the disciples are clueless to what he's talking about. He's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He's telling them to beware of it. Leaven was the old world version of packeted yeast, if you like. It was what you used in bread. 
Something that works in secret within the dough and changes it, warps it. He's telling them to make sure they don't fall into this trap of hypocrisy that these groups had. But the disciples think he's talking about literal bread. As though he's sort of telling them to avoid bakeries owned by hypocrites. You know, beware the greed of Greggs. Beware the pretension of bread. But in fact, they just don't have a clue, do they? They think he's talking about the fact that there's no bread on the boat. They think that's what he's worried about. As though that is what Jesus would be focusing on. As though that would even be a problem. But as Jesus speaks, that's what the disciples think. We're almost ready for round three. But how are we going to get enough bread to feed everybody? In the middle of a lake, we've only got one loaf of bread. When we've already had the feeding of the 4,000. When we've already had the feeding of the 5,000. One of them, just the chapter before, that's where they're basically coming from. As though the previous chapters where Jesus has fed over 9,000 people hadn't happened. They're worried that Jesus will be annoyed with them because they haven't brought a packed lunch. The leftovers from those miracles would be more than enough to feed everybody on the boat and then some. He points that out to them in verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. Now, some people make a big deal of the number seven and 12. It could be Gentiles and Jews. Well, well, it could be. But this is a gospel, not a psalm or a prophetic passage where those figurative numbers are used more commonly. The point is, though, that he's telling them what he's done, and they don't understand. They don't get it. They seem to have no idea who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Here is one who can feed a town the size of Menston with little more than a Sainsbury's meal deal. And they seem oblivious. They don't seem to understand a word he's saying. He's trying to teach them deep spiritual truths... And they think he's talking about sandwiches. Jesus diagnoses the problem perfectly in verse 19. Uh, oh, sorry, right there, sorry, verse uh, 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then down in verse 21, he said to them, Do you not yet understand? They have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. Their minds are like sieves. They can't seem to remember what Jesus has done or can do. As we said last week, it's like the Israelites in the wilderness, constantly panicking, because they seem to forget what God can do and has done. And their hearts, he says, are hard, impenetrable. They're like Pharaoh in the days of Exodus who despite all the evidence right in front of him, just couldn't see. They're blind, deaf, hard-hearted, and hopelessly forgetful. They have God in the flesh in front of them, talking to them, teaching them, showing them who he is. But it might as well be anyone. They really don't understand what he's saying. And it's not as though they're sort of dense or thick or something. It's not an intelligence issue. Let's not buy into the idea that northern manual labourers, as most of the disciples were, can't be intelligent. 
My dad always reckoned that his uncle Cyril was a genius, but he worked out a bit. It's just the way it goes. It's not that they're not literature critics and don't understand metaphors. It's not about brain power. It's not about education. It's about blindness. They need someone who can get through to their hard hearts. Someone who can unstop their ears. Who can open their eyes. The Apostle Paul puts this really starkly in his letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see that? They can't see who Jesus is. They can't understand what he is about. I remember a few years ago meeting up to read the Bible uh, with a student when I was uh, over in Lancaster. And they thought that they were a Christian. They'd grown up in a church. They went along to church every week. But when we came to look at the Bible together, it was like it was written in another language. But this was not a case of bad comprehension. I mean, they were a geography student, but their English wasn't too bad. But after a couple of months, they became a Christian. And after that, it was like meeting with a different person. Suddenly things started to make sense to them. Suddenly they got things that had eluded them somehow for months. It's like they were seeing everything with new eyes. Not that they understood absolutely everything, but it's like a veil had been lifted, like their eyes had been opened. They're not the only ones to know that experience, are they? Think John Newton's Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He knew that experience. These disciples are blind, and they need someone who can open blind eyes. Where are they going to find someone who can do that? Well, point two. This point is shorter than the other ones, but its implications are big. Having eyes, and finally seeing. Have a look at verse 22 to 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. In an incident very much like the deaf-mute man last week, Jesus has brought a man and asked to lay his hands on him, to touch him. As with the deaf man, he takes him to the side, he spits, and he puts his hands on him. And as with the deaf deaf man, the whole thing takes place in two stages, so to speak. When Jesus does this the first time, the man can see, but not clearly. He can see people, but they look like walking trees. Now, this is not Lord of the Rings. It's not Ents that are sort of walking around if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. He just can't see clearly what's what's happening. Then Jesus lays his hands on him a second time, and the man's sight is restored. Or literally, the man is restored and sees everything. And as with the deaf man, he's seen the instruction not to tell anyone. Don't go back to the village and proclaim it. Right after showing that the disciples' problem is blindness, Mark shows us Jesus healing a blind man. 
Now, apart from the sheer mercy and compassion of helping someone in need, this miracle is there to teach us something. It's there to teach us that Jesus is the one who can open blind eyes. Jesus is the one who is capable of taking these blind disciples and allowing them to see. It's a parallel miracle to the one last week where Jesus unstopped deaf ears. He's the one who makes the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And that's what the Messiah would come and do, according to Isaiah. That's what he had come for. Humanly speaking, their problem was impossible to overcome. Jesus asks blind people to see. He asks these blind disciples. But then Jesus does the impossible. He opens blind eyes. They can't do it for themselves. They're helpless. But Jesus is their helper, their rescuer. He does for them what they cannot do. But did you notice that he doesn't do it all at once? He deliberately does it in two stages. And I say deliberately because think about this for a second. Can you think of any other miracle where Jesus has to do something twice? You know, on the surface of it, it could look like Jesus doesn't quite manage it the first time. As though he's not quite powerful enough. You know, well, I've given it a go. Right, no, that didn't quite work. Right, I'll I'll try again. (coughs) No, this is Jesus. Think about what we've seen. He can heal with a word. He can raise the dead. This is not a power issue, as though he just didn't quite manage it the first time. So it must be on purpose. He must be doing it for a reason. And the reason is that this two-stage opening eyes will mirror the two-stage of the opening of the eyes of the disciples. They're too going to have a two-stage miracle as Jesus opens their eyes. They will see clearly eventually, but from now they must content themselves, third point, having eyes and seeing in part. Have a look at verses 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. The disciples here, having understood nothing, having been spiritually blind as a bat, deaf as a doorpost, now suddenly see something out of the blue. They get it. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. No mere prophet like John. No simple messenger from the past. This is the Christ, the chosen one to whom all those prophets looked forward to. The one who would come and rescue his people. The most important person in the whole of history. Peter and the disciples here go from clueless to clued in, blind to seeing, deaf to hearing, hard-hearted to soft-hearted. It's no wonder in the other Gospels we get comments recorded like this, Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this is not clever Peter putting the clues together like Sherlock Holmes. This is not clever Peter coming to a logical conclusion after investigating all the evidence. This is Peter having been to spectators 
and having his eyesight seen to by Jesus. God has revealed this to him. Jesus has miraculously opened his eyes and now he can see all that he should have seen all along. Who Jesus is. Now there's nothing wrong with looking at the evidence. There's nothing wrong about gathering clues to who Jesus is. But in the end it takes God to do a miracle to open eyes to the truth. That's why we pray to God for those who don't believe. If they could open their own eyes, we wouldn't need to, would we? As it is, we talk to God about people, and we talk to people about God. We do both, don't we? That's why we thank God for opening our eyes when we become a believer, rather than congratulating ourselves for seeing the truth without his help. Jesus does what the disciples could not do for themselves. But he only does it in part at this point. Have a look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now that the disciples have understood who Jesus is, he now starts to teach them what he's come to do. Suffer, die, and rise again. He says this, it says plainly, so no parable language, no room for misunderstanding. And Peter hears all right, but he doesn't understand He gets that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't understand what Christ has come to do. And we get that, don't we? It's quite hard to get your head round. Because in the Bible, the Christ was the son of David. David being Israel's greatest king. The one who defeated his enemies. The one who sat on the throne and governed in righteousness. We're told that the son of David would have a throne that would endure forever. On top of that, Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. Well, he was the one in Daniel 7, listen to this. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That was the Christ. That was the Son of Man. And you can see, humanly speaking, why Peter was confused. But instead of asking Jesus to explain more, he takes Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. The man he has just hailed as the Messiah, he takes him to the side and tells him off. You can imagine the conversation, can't you? No, Jesus, you've got it wrong. The Christ doesn't come to be rejected and killed. The Son of Man is a glorious figure who receives an everlasting kingdom. They won't put you to death. The Messiah brings in the kingdom. You don't need to suffer and die. It's all about the glory, Jesus, not suffering. You mustn't talk like this. But Jesus sees Peter's rebuke for what it is. He sees the disciples standing nearby, presumably listening in on all of this. And he rebukes Peter in the strongest of terms. Get behind me, Satan. He sees that this is an attack of the devil. This is the tempter at work. What is he tempting him with? 
But he's tempting him with a path that doesn't involve the cross. Glory without suffering. The kingdom without the cost. No, no, no cross, Jesus. You can have the glory without it. As the devil said to Jesus in the wilderness, all the kingdoms of the world could be yours. But Jesus is having none of it. He calls out Peter. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of... Now, you'd expect Jesus here to say Satan, wouldn't you? Or the devil. You know what I mean? Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of the devil. But he doesn't. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're thinking like a human being, Peter. You're thinking like a man. What does humankind want? Glory without suffering. A path that doesn't involve the cross. The kingdom without the cost. We'll see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. The disciples are interested in glory. Who gets to sit next to Jesus in glory? Which one of us is the greatest? But Jesus again and again points them back to it's the fact that it's suffering now and glory later. There's no kingdom without the cross. There's no glory without suffering first. Not that suffering somehow earns us glory, but that the sacrificial suffering is a path to glory. It's the God-instituted pattern. That's true for him, and it's true for those who follow him. Have a look at verse 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The path to glory is by the cross. There's no other way. If we want to follow Jesus, we must take up our cross. We must deny ourselves. We must lose our lives to gain them. Essentially here, Jesus is inviting us to die. He's saying, if you would come after me, Chris has got to die. Andrew's got to die. Sarah's got to die. You've got to crucify self. Your old self has got to go. The Apostle Paul will write years later, Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul is dead, says the Apostle. My life is now lived for Christ, not for me. I've lost my life to gain it. Jesus is calling us here at a minimum to metaphorical martyrdom. Dying to self daily. I say at a minimum because some believers to this day do lay down their lives <coughs> for his sake and for the gospel's sake. But he doesn't just ask us to submit to the cross, but to take up our cross. To actively say no to self and yes to Christ. To die daily to self and to live for Christ. And to live for Christ is to lay down our lives for others. Because after all, that's what the cross was about, wasn't it? It wasn't suffering for suffering's sake, but sacrificial suffering for the good of others. 
The Bible knows nothing of this weird masochistic self-punishment that some sects are into. The whole point is that Jesus died on a cross to take our punishment in our place. Why then would we punish ourselves when Christ has taken it? Those of us who are prone to beat ourselves up mentally need to remember that as well. No, the suffering that we're called to, the cross that we're called to bear, is suffering for the good of others. We're to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, just as Christ laid down his life for us. We're to serve our brothers and sisters sacrificially. There's a sense in which it should cost us. It might be time, it might be money, it might be emotional energy. But we're to serve one another as Christ served us. Take up our cross in response to Christ taking up his. Now to some of you that might sound crazy. Who would willingly go into suffering? But we have in mind the things of man that say to us, preserve your life. Avoid the cross. Be true to yourself. But the gospel says, lay down your life. Take up your cross and be true to Christ. If you live for yourself, you will lose yourself, says Jesus. You can get everything you could possibly want in this world. Family, money, fame, glory. But what use is it if you lose your very self? As he says there in 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good is it if it perishes with you when you do? Now there are valuable things in this world, don't get me wrong. But none of them is of more value than your soul. Nothing is worth it for that. Because it's the only thing you have that lasts. Yet so many ditch their souls, sell their souls for trinkets, for the empty praise of man. They would rather gain face with the world and lose it with God. They would rather be loved by what Jesus calls in verse 38, this adulterous and sinful generation, than know the love of Christ. So where where are we in all this? Where are you? Where am I? Will you be ashamed of Christ and his words? Or will you take up your cross? Will you die to self now or perish when Christ returns? Will you lose your life today and find it? Or will you lose your soul forever? If you're a follower of Christ, it might be that you've drifted back into that human way of thinking that speaks of self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. It might be that you've put down your cross And try to take an easier path. But Jesus again tells us that the easy path is the one that leads to destruction. It's the narrow path that leads to life. And we know this, don't we? It's right in front of us. This is the way that we should respond to Jesus. Giving up our lives. Laying down our rights. Taking up our cross. And living for him. Yet how many of us will return to the comfortable, easy lives that we live? And ignore Jesus' call to sacrifice, to metaphorical martyrdom. How many of us will spend this week in trivial pursuits, forgetting Jesus' claim on the whole of our lives? What could we do today for Jesus to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? 
Jesus is the Christ. He's come to die on a cross for us, for our sins, and to bring us forgiveness. In response, we are to lay down our lives, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That's what Mark wants us to see. That's what God wants us to do. Perhaps these are the missing pieces of the jigsaw that have been staring you in the face for so long. If so, don't turn your face away this morning. Decide to do it now. To die to self and to live for Christ. Make it today that your life in Jesus starts. If you've been on the path a while and you've put down your cross, well, let today be the day that you take it back up again. Decide to die for self and live for Jesus. And if you're taking up your cross and it's feeling heavy at the moment, pray that God would open your eyes to see more of Jesus who went on before us with his cross. Pray that God would open your eyes to see the glory and the joy that lies ahead. And pray that he may open the eyes of others, that we might bear the burden together as a group of believers and look to Jesus for everything. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he took up his cross. Father, thank you that he went to Calvary to pay for our sin, for the good of others. Father, help us to live our lives in response to what he has done. And Father, open our eyes, we pray, to see it more clearly and to live it more rightly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.